John chapter 20. We're going to look at a familiar passage and uh, just believe that the Lord, as he is faithful to do, will breathe some new insights that he wants us to see today. John chapter 20, beginning at verse uh, 11. I think that's where I told you, right? Yeah, here we go. Thank you, Scott. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said unto her, Woman, why do you weep? And she said unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if you have borne him hence, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said unto her, Mary. And she turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus said unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then Jesus said to them, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, which was not with them when Jesus came, the other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again his disciples were with him, and Thomas with them. And then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then said he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples which were not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. It's a longer passage than we normally would read, but there are a lot of factors here that I I believe we need to consider. First is something that Les mentioned earlier, and that is that when Jesus was placed in that tomb, it was quite an unusual 
process that was going on. And one of the things that really um, was amazing to me was that Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and asked for the privilege of allowing Jesus to be buried in this new sepulcher, this new family tomb that I guess he had just had either purchased it or had it excavated and, and then um, made into something that would, he felt would be acceptable. And Pilate granted that. And then came Nicodemus, and he had a 100 pounds of aloe and myrrh. A 100 pounds. That's a lot. Not only with the expense. You want to talk about broken and spilled out. This was a king's treasury of very, very expensive, um, very expensive adornings uh, for a body. And um, that all went on. And then the tomb was sealed. Uh, and then you, then you find this. And what we didn't read was that Mary came early in the morning and she saw the, the stone had been rolled away. And she went running to tell Peter and John and to tell, you know, the rest of the group that was there with them. And as soon as Peter and John heard it, you know, John and Peter had a, a race and they ran to the tomb. And John got there and he looked in and then Peter arrived and Peter just went on in. And there he saw the grave clothes folded up, and um, they didn't, neither of them saw the body. So they went, and Mary was still there. Now when Mary this time stooped and looked in, she not only saw the grave clothes, but she saw two angels. One of them was sitting at the head, and one of them was sitting at the feet. And now it's, it's interesting to me that here were Peter and John, two of the big three. And they go, they look in. Peter even goes in. The place probably smelled rather aromatic with that 100 pounds of uh, aloe and myrrh plus a three-day-old dead body for a while there. Um, they take off. Where were the angels? Why didn't these two guys see those angels? Um, and where was Jesus? He was there, obviously, because not only did the angels appear to Mary, but Jesus appeared to Mary. And this is something that I think we need to, to, to see. And it goes back to what Thomas was told by the Lord. You believe because you see Blessed are those who've not seen and yet believe. You know, one of the things that you find when you look at passages like this is that there will be those who say, well, okay, Peter and John reported this, and then Mary reported something totally different. See, there's an inaccuracy in the Scripture. There's, there's something wrong there because they're not agreeing with each other. You hear that a lot in what is called biblical criticism. You know, there are entire classes you have to take in seminary and doctoral studies called biblical criticism. And, I, you know, I always wondered, I guess they called it that because you take a critical look, you take a, a very crucial look. 
But what those classes end up being is criticism of the Scripture. I remember one time uh, driving through the city. We, I was driving Pastor Noah up to Presbyterian Hospital to see some patient that was there. And he was talking to me about um, where I wanted to go on to school after I finished my bachelor's degree. And he was talking about some of the seminaries here in town. He said, you better don't go to this one, don't go to this one, don't go to this one. Because when I've known really wonderful young men and women that have gone on to study there and they emerge from there not believing anything of the Bible. He said, so you have to be really careful. And um, it, it really is true how that so often people will begin to engage in what they call biblical, biblical criticism, and they, they'll take something as simple as Peter and John's account and Mary's account, and they'll say there's a contradiction, so you, you really can't believe all of it as being, any of it as being accurate. And they, they do this with the Gospels as well. And they'll say, you know, these things, look how they contradict one another. And they really don't contradict one another. It's uh, one of the things that you should buy if, if you, 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 you probably can find it online is a harmony of the Gospels. And it doesn't mean that you just sing it in, in four parts. But, you know, it goes, it kind of puts these passages together in their, in their timeline. And it, it, it's very interesting to see that. But on surface, it does appear to somebody who's looking for, for, for a fight to say that they don't agree. And then you have the issue of the different original texts. I mean, one of the things we had to do in our, in our Greek class, in one of our later Greek classes, is our professor gave us <clears throat> different passages from the Gospels from different manuscripts, and asked, but, but gave each, each of our groups a certain manu manuscript text, and then we had to come together and tell about what we'd researched. And the point of the thing was to develop our research skills. At that time, we didn't have computer Bibles where you could just hit a word and do a search. You had to do everything through books, which was really painstakingly long. And we didn't have a whole lot of shortcuts then. But, you know, it took us a long time. We had a month to, to go through these passages. There were four members of a team. But what we didn't realize is that when we came back together, uh, it would be like a debate because certain things were different. They didn't contradict one another, but they were a little bit different. And we had this discussion about how that over the years when the Bible was being, was being brought forth from the, 1400, from the 1200s, 1400s, 1500s, how that these different texts were preserved and um, how that there was a lot of battle over it. And, you know, there really was... There was battle between the, the Catholics and the Protestants, between the Catholics and the Huguenots. You, you had, and a lot of it surfaced uh, in whoever was ruling England at the time. You know, before, you know, you had Queen Mary that then pre, predated Queen Elizabeth and then King, the actual King James, which is the book that most of you carry. And, you know, Queen Mary was Catholic and then Elizabeth brought back in the Protestantism. And then there was a big, you know, you had the English Bible that was coming, the Bishop's Bible. You had all these different works. And Luther 
he published uh, the Bible in the 1500s, but it was, it was more like a, a glorified Catholic version because he translated out of the Latin. But, you know, it, it's very interesting to see these battles, and you had to, you, you really had to fight. I don't mean just for what you believed, but you had to fight for your very life for what you believed. And I, I don't normally do this, but there's a book that I have, and it talks about some of this textual criticism. And it's about a time when Queen Mary was ruling England in the early 1500s. And at that time, she was trying to do away with any Protestant viewpoints. And the Bishop of, uh, of Canterbury was a guy named Thomas Cranmer. And she was... She was, she had already killed, um, she had martyred a couple of his contemporaries because they were not willing to surrender what they believed uh, from, the, from the Protestant viewpoint. And now she was threatening this man who was basically the head of the church. And she, uh, she had him recant, she had him repent publicly of different things that he had believed, and um, she, they were doing this to try to, to eliminate the, the stand of what people had believed in Protestantism. And this guy was, for fear of life, going along with it until finally they wanted him to get up and preach a sermon that had been written that basically did away with all the things that, that he had believed and taught throughout his life and ministry. And on the day, I'm going to read this, on the day marked for um, Cran, and she told him, you either, you either preach this word for word, or as soon as the sermon ends, you're going to be executed. What a thing. What, what a thing. So on the day marked for this sermon, March 21st, 1556, an audience gathered at a service at the University Church in Oxford. They expected to hear him deny a faith that, he, that had faltered over the years, one certain to crumble beneath, between the weight, beneath the weight of martyrdom. Shockwaves rippled through the crowd as Cramner, Cranmer deviated from his prepared speech, boldly renouncing all previous recantations and confessing his sin that had compromised his faith. As he pressed into his final words, his voice gathered strength. And he raised his hand and he said, I will punish the hand that signed the recantings of my faith by putting it into the fire first. And as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and declare him to be the Antichrist with all his false, false doctrines. What a sermon. As Cranmer's fiery words died away, officials dragged him to the post to be burned at the same site outside the college where his colleagues, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, had burned at the stake as Protestant martyrs six months before him. Can you imagine that? I'm going to make sure that as a fire burns that the hand that I used to sign this incantation, that that goes in the fire first. Now, not, none of us, thank God, have to, have to deal with such stunning opposition to our faith. But it is nevertheless as potent and it's nevertheless as devious. 
I love this wonderful passage that we read. And I wonder about the man named Thomas. He's been called Doubting Thomas. I'm not, I'm not here to malign him. I'm just sticking to what is said here. And I wonder about what might have gone through his mind when all of those guys were there saying, our Lord is risen. We've seen him. And Thomas said, unless I can put my finger in the holes where the nails were through his hands and stick my hand up into his side, I'm not going to believe. I wonder about that. I wonder, I wonder about what, what had gone on in his thinking, what had gone on in his spirit. And um, I wonder about that battle for faith that went on. We're in a battle for faith today. I mean, the very, the very heart of these words, this passage that I read right here, this passage that we just read from John, if you, if you look at much of anything on the Internet, you'll find people who say, this is not the Word of God. They'll say, this was not written by John. Dennis just wrote a book about John, and he undoubtedly saw that. You can see a picture of before and after picture that Pastor Fabian made for the cover. John is a young man. John is an old man. I don't know who snapped that, but it's really kind of interesting. I'm surprised John had that much hair after all those years. Um, but, you know, there are people who say that this couldn't have been written by John. And, you know, you want to see a real interesting thing. See the battle of the book of, the Re book of Revelation. See the battle over the years about the book of Revelation. And they all say John would never have been able to write these. And they say the same thing about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They say these weren't written by these guys. And really what, when they were written, they're not written in a language that we should even study. And everything about what you and I believe, um, everything about what you and I believe that God has preserved in this word <clears throat> has systematically been ridiculed and mocked and, um, and, and has been made, made in the minds of some very potent voices in, de in denominations uh, to be a, a debunking agent. And so think about that. If, you, if these words weren't written by these guys, the ones who the Bible says wrote them, and if they really aren't accurate, then we don't know what to trust. And forget about studying any of the things that the Spirit of Truth has been leading us through. Because if you, if you don't believe that these have been preserved by God and that they're inerrant and, and inspired, then what use is it for you to even look up the meaning of any word because they'll say that's not what was used anyway. And even in these scriptures, even if it is a word that's used, we don't know who wrote it, and it's probably just some, uh, some vague recollection made up. And they'll say, well, you know, these were really probably not penned till many decades after the things actually happened. So who's to say whether even if these guys did remember that they're actually accurate? Uh, you know, so many things about these arguments are like a stone rolling down the hill. Once you believe one thing, then the next roll down the hill of, of disbelief 
takes speed and takes, takes, uh, gains momentum. And before you know it, you're at the bottom of the hill, crashed into the valley, believing nothing. That's the end result of this, that people would not believe anything. It's back to the days of judges where everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And I, I just, I just wanted you, want you to know that <clears throat> we need to really hold on to what we believe or we won't end up believing anything. Um, even the issue of, you know, if you, if you take away the Gospels, if you take away the validity of the Scripture, then the whole story of Jesus isn't something that you can really believe in. And, you know, I, I just, these battles, we think that they're being fought right now, and they are to some degree, but these are hundreds of years old. These battles, this, what I just read out of this book, happened 600 years, or oh, 500 years ago. Same battle. And, and now the voices that rose that would say, you can't believe this, you can't believe that, you can't believe this, you've got you've to embrace this other doctrine or lack of doctrine. It's, in some ways, the same voices saying them 500 years removed. And you've got to hold on to what you believe. You've got to hold on to the crown that, that God has given to you. Let no man take it. And at issue is this testimony of the resurrection of Jesus. You know, I, I studied about, um, and just for everybody, I know you're not looking up. I'm following my watch, not that clock. Um, and I purposely set my watch back 15 minutes so that I'm in good shape. What? It's 1130. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. <clears throat> I, I like to study different things about archaeology, biblical archaeology. And there's a guy that I followed who's a, a Jewish guy. And he, he would go to a lot of these sites that are freshly being excavated in, in, throughout the Holy Land. And it's really fascinating to watch what they discover and how, how it really has served to show the, the validity of things that are written in Scripture. And I was very disappointed that about a year and a half ago, this guy, who's, who's not a Christian, um, but we bless him anyway, he had done some excavation together with some other group in Israel, and they said that they had found the tomb of Jesus' family. And so he was teaching in, uh, he was lecturing in New York City at the debut of a book about this study. They said they had found the, where Mary was buried and some of Jesus' brothers and sisters, and that may well be. But he began his teaching. He said, I just want to state here today as, a, and he gave his, his, uh, his Jewish credentials, and he said, I just want to state here today that I found Jesus. But then he began to say what he meant by finding Jesus, and he found, he found a tomb, uh, he found somebody in that tomb who it's said was named Jesus. And because he found this, this casket or whatever it would be uh, for them of stone, that he said, well, this proves that Jesus really didn't die and rise again. 
here he is. And I thought, and then they went through all this thing, and they were talking about all these historical things and the carbon dating and the different things that they'd done, and the DNA analysis of bones that were in there and everything. And I'm thinking, you know, your whole thing here in some ways makes sense, but in another way, it makes no sense at all. Because you find a, a tomb that says Jesus, you don't know who's in there. There were a lot of Joshua's running around. You know, there were a lot of there were a lot of people in that in, in, in Israel at that time whose name was that. That's just true. And and really, I could take you through a graveyard and in Mexico City, and you're gonna find hundreds of Jesuses buried there with crosses put on, on the tombstone. Does that mean that Jesus didn't rise again? Of course not. But for this guy, he was stating this, and there were a lot of people, and I bless him, I'm not ridiculing him. I understand where, where, they, where they were in that setting. But there are a lot of people who look at any way they can to debunk what you and I hold dear and what we believe. And we've got to hold on to that. We've, we've got to hold on to it, not because their argument is right or is wrong and ours is right. It's because their argument can be persuasive. And as soon as you start, it's just kind of any other thing. If you've got a salesman and you start buying into whatever they're saying at the very beginning, pretty soon you become aligned there and you're going to be on, on, on grounds to purchase whatever it is that he or she is trying to sell you. And, and so we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no question. We believe that the scriptures have been anointed by God and preserved. However he did it over the hundreds of years. However he did it over the thousands of years. This is God's word. And as soon as you start nitpicking and tossing out and ripping out and questioning and listening to critical, critical thinking, you set yourself on such unsteady ground that you're, you're just almost going to fall. Now, it doesn't mean that we need to be, I'm thinking of a word that will be acceptable that mothers wouldn't mind their kid hearing. It doesn't mean that we need to be um, gullible <laughs> and believe this no matter what. We believe this because it's true. And I want to tell you that no matter how, how carefully scripted opposing views are to the Scripture, they have been carefully crafted for the purpose of trying to defeat the truths that we have in this Word. They have been meticulously put together, and I'm sure to, to some degree with a lot of help from the enemy, to try to convince people and to, to cause them to abandon what they believe. But we, we've got to hold on. Because listen to this. Why is this so important on a Resurrection Sunday? Because if you don't believe this Scripture, then why are we here? If you don't believe what's written here, what else are you not going to believe? Pretty soon you're going to believe that Jesus really didn't come in the flesh, if he came at all. Pretty soon you're going to believe that that's all a concocted story by a religious world to keep people under control. And there are very potent arguments for that. Whose report will you believe? I choose to believe 
that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this earth and died, fully man, fully God, for us, a sinless sacrifice for us, that our sins may be forgiven, that the sins of the world might be applied with the blood of Jesus, and that we then have wonderful opportunity to be redeemed to our Father and to be operative sons in the heavens, partnering with Him. And I believe that the Holy Spirit has preserved this Word for us so that we might grow and live and develop and see new things continuing to come out daily. This Word is alive. Any saint has to know this. This Word is alive. We read it. God shows things in it. And he meticulously wove that scarlet thread of understanding throughout all of this by the Spirit of God. And it is alive. It's not dead. But it's, it, we, want, we must watch ourselves and guard over ourselves. Lest we become a people and a nation that is derelict of faith. But thanks be to God, he is risen. And um, we have this wonderful gift that tells us exactly what happened. I, I'm going to end by saying this. You know, there are some things in my life 20, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, that I can absolutely recount word for word verbatim what was said and what happened i mean it's very clear um do you hear that angel dancing on the roof <laughs> um and and you know i don't really take a lot of journal notes but i have written down some things that at the time, I thought, I better write this down. I better note it because it is so unusual. I'll remember the event, but I want to remember specifically all the details. And we tell people, when you're interpreting things, when you are receiving words from God, write them down. Write them down in detail. And you hear the story that Mary told to, to Luke. You mean to tell me that no matter how many years later when Luke arrived and was asking Mary about what happened uh, during the time when she was being encountered by Gabriel, you mean to tell me that Mary didn't remember that? She held all those things in her heart. This was a, life, I want to say life-changing, this was a miraculous life-changing thing, and you're going to tell me that a woman who went through that is not going to be able to tell you word for word what happened? I mean... There have been much lesser things that I've had people tell me word for word the way that I did whatever I did to them. And, and man, but we're talking about here the virgin birth. There's no way that that could have been forgotten or there's no way that that interview could not have been absolutely preserved in perpetuity. But you hear some people say, oh, you know, that just the passage of time. It's kind of like us trying to say, what happened during World War I? Okay, I'm done. Heavenly Father, I bless the people that, have, that you've called to work as sons in these hours, in these days. And I thank you for your victory. And I thank you that we have the written account 
of this. We don't know everything as what we read. There are, these things are written that you might believe. Uh, there, are, there are many other signs, truly, Jesus did in the presence of his disciples. You know, we don't, we don't necessarily have them written, but uh, even at the very book of at the end of John, uh, there are so many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written, everyone, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. So much of what you did, we won't know until we come to heaven. But what we do know, you've preserved for us. Thank you for your victory. And thank you for allowing us to be able to share these words that tell us what you did. And we love you, Lord. I bless, I bless this church, and I bless all the wonderful people who you've united together with us as family. Give us a wonderful day in you. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.